Hey everybody, before we get started, I just wanted to jump on because we are so excited to announce that Restore Registration is officially open. We can't wait to be with you again this year. It's going to be on September 5th through 7th at the Mountain America Expo Center in Sandy, Utah. That's the evening of September 5th and then all day on the 6th and the 7th. Three days of incredible speakers, poets, musicians, and artists. We really think that what we have planned will blow you away again this year, so you won't want to miss it. Go to faithmatters.org slash restore for tickets and we'll see you there. Hi, this is Bill Turnbull, one of the co-founders of Faith Matters Foundation. We are going to be expanding our Faith Matters podcast in 2020 in an exciting direction. Our uh, conversations hosted by Terrell Givens have been really well received, and Terrell has some incredible guests planned for the upcoming year, and so we're really excited about that. But we've also asked two members of our executive team, Tim and Aubrey Chavez, to add their talents and voices to the mix. You might have already heard their recent conversations with Fiona Givens and with Patrick Mason. And we thought you might be interested to hear a little about Aubrey and Tim's personal story. So they recently sat down with Richard Osler for an episode of his Listen, Learn, and Love podcast. It was a terrific conversation, according to Richard, one of his best ever episodes. So with permission, we decided to share that interview on our podcast. I think you'll find it really insightful and inspiring and a great way to get to know our new hosts, Aubrey and Tim Chavez. So enjoy. Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guests on today's podcast are my friends Tim and Aubrey, say your last name for Chavez, is that right? That's very close, yes. I'm going to spell it for our listeners. It's C-H-A-V-E-S. And they are a married couple with four kids in their 30s. They live in Utah County. Um, I think your oldest is 11. Yeah, that's right. And we're recording this on a Saturday, and I think you've left your kids in charge of themselves. So we're at the age we... That's a great age to do that. (laughs) Right. We may have to take a phone call. (laughs) That's great. Um, I became aware of Tim as I listened to a Faith Matters podcast that he did with Patrick Mason. And Patrick Mason's great. Um, But as I was listening to Tim ask questions to Patrick Mason, I recognized that Tim has a story to tell. And so I wanted to get Tim on the podcast, and I messaged him, and he said, I'd love to, but and I'd love to bring my wife, Aubrey, with me. So I thought, great, we'll have both of them on the podcast. And Aubrey just offered a wonderful prayer before we started. But this is a podcast talking about people that go through faith crises or faith transitions and want to and are able to stay members of our restored church. And I went through what I call a mini faith crisis as a YSA bishop, and I've landed a place that's sustaining for me as a committed member of the church. And um, Tim and Aubrey are going to talk about their journey going through the same type of experience. And they have just really thoughtful insights and have been brave enough to share their journey in a couple places that I've read about. It's a great story. And it's couples like these two that give me hope for the future of our church, for the future of society, with their thoughtful um, insights into our church, into the doctrine of our church, a little bit about our LGBTQ brothers and sisters, which is a sensitive issue for most of our millennial members. So um, just an overview of the podcast, we're going to have four sections, roughly. Tim will talk about his own faith crisis. And then we'll have Aubrey share her perspective as they shared that journey together. And Aubrey kind of walked through the same space. And that's the second section. The third section is about belonging and how to belong. And as part of that, we'll talk about the Face Matters effort and podcasts that they're a part of. 
And then we'll talk about number four, um, which Aubrey called this gifts of a faith crisis. And I love that positive term that Aubrey uses. Uh, Just by way of introduction, let's have you introduce your family to us, Aubrey. Where did you two meet and grow up and tell us about your boys and girls and where you're raising your family? Sure. So uh, Tim and I both grew up in mostly in Sandy, Utah, and we, we sort of grew up together. We've known each other since seventh grade English. So we've been good friends ever since. Uh, Tim went on his mission to Uruguay and um, was studying at BYU and I was at Utah State and we both ended up home on the same semester and started dating pretty quickly after his mission and were married in 2006. So we have, uh, yeah, four, four kids. Our oldest is 11 all the way down to two and we live in Utah County now and our Raising the kids. And do you have boys, so, girls? One boy, an eight-year-old boy, and the rest girls. And three girls. So, That's great. Yeah. Yeah. And tell us where you've lived around the United States and what, what took you where? So uh, when Tim finished school, um, he he worked for a little bit and then decided to apply to business school. And uh, so we left for um, Harvard Business School in Boston, Massachusetts and lived there for a couple of years. And uh, switched coasts about halfway through for an internship in um, San Francisco, and then finished business school and came home. So, been Welcome around just back. a little bit. Um, we've had some members of our family that have gone to Harvard Business School. I remember be- meeting my brother there and his wife, and they were married with one or two kids. And I thought this is a great experience, but it's complicated, just logistically yes. going to grad school in Harvard. Tell us yeah. about that, Tim. Yes. Well, it's just, it's a very, uh, it's a, it's a very different uh, environment than the uh, suburbs of Salt Lake City than that we were used to. Um, it, it's, it's far more expensive. It's far more difficult to get around, but um, just culturally it's, uh, it's, it's easy to see why people love Boston. I mean, there's so much to do, so much to experience and so much for the kids to take in, especially um, you know, especially around sort of the history of our, of our nation. And we loved our, we loved our time out there. But then when you move back, it's also just a lot easier when you have three, four kids. I mean, the, the conveniences, um, of, uh, suburban life are definitely real. So do you guys own a minivan? We do. It's It's parked out front. (laughs) It's my shameless dream car. (laughs) Does it have TVs in the cars? TVs and no, no TVs. I guess that's my dream car. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, let's get right into this. Tim, just share with us your return missionary, kind of traditional believing LDS guy, served a mission in Uruguay, get married, and you're off. And then you have a faith crisis. So yeah. tell us about that term and your own and your own journey. Yeah, for sure. And I, I think, I mean, traditional believing for sure, and potentially even more traditional and more believing, you know, than. Uh, than many from a young age. I, I like to joke that, you know, a lot of times in high school, uh, you know, kids will have, you know, potentially uh, potentially bad influences and want to, you know, go, go and do different things. That was not our experience. Aubrey and I, like she mentioned, were very close friends in high school. And we had a group of friends around us that were also very close and were very, uh, very, very uh, traditional and believing and good people. And I, the the joke is, and it's kind of true that there was a, a little bit of a competition about who went to the temple more to do baptisms for, baptisms for the dead in our in our group of high school friends, and you, you would know because they would show up in first period wearing Sunday clothes. That means they had gone. That means they went to the temple. That means they went to the temple. Yeah, um, and so we were. I mean, we were very uh, very orthodox and and both raised in families that were that were that way. Um, and I think 
I, I can't speak for Aubrey here. I think, well, I think I can, but we both loved our childhoods and our, in our youth. Um, I, I guess on my mission were where the first seeds of faith crisis, although it, it certainly didn't manifest itself during my mission, but you know, you start to have to defend the church in certain, in certain situations. Um, and in a lot of cases as a missionary, you're unfamiliar with, uh, with the attacks that people will use. And back in those days, you know, it was what we called, you know, anti-Mormon propaganda. And it, you know, it turned out after I got back from my mission, I guess I, I wanted to arm myself, you know, against, against some of those attacks. And so this is, you know, roughly 2006 and I'm wanting to, I'm wanting to know, you know, what's out there and how I can defend the church. And so the, the thing that you do is go to the internet and that's what I, that's what I started doing. Um, I found, I found Fair Mormon. That was sort of the best repository for me to find, you know, what people were saying and how I, how I could respond. And, um, that was, a that was an interesting experience for me because it sort of started down, it started this path of a little bit of cognitive dissonance where I would say, okay, here's the attack. Uh, here's the defense. But then I like really in my heart, I was like, in some cases I was like, I'm not sure about that. I'm not sure about that defense. Like, I'm not, yeah, I'm not sure if I really buy that. And, um, so then what I, what I wanted to do was, uh, get a little bit more into like the scholarly, like the true scholarly efforts. And so I started reading rough stone rolling, um, by Richard Bushman. And this is 2000, you know, 2006, 2007. And I got maybe a, a hundred pages in and skipped ahead to the polygamy chapters. Cause that's really where I wanted to, that, that was maybe one of the big issues that I wanted to defend. And I ended up putting it down because it was just too much for me to handle at that point. It yeah. felt like, Go ahead. Yeah, it just felt like if this is if this is true, which I took it that it was because you know this book is sold in Deseret Book, and it's it was written by a faithful believing member, then it's just it's not it's not an attack anymore. It's just what you know. It's just what happened, and that I think that scared me, you know, to the point where I like I said I put the book down and I didn't and I just sort of pushed it off for a couple of years. Um, by the time sort of 2010 2011 came around. I just, it, it was this, it was an instance where, you know, I, I had put that on, on the proverbial shelf, but the shelf was really starting to creak. And so I, I've, you know, finished rough stone rolling. I continue to do more online research and find out about the issues. And at, at some, at some point in that time frame, I started thinking, wow, you know, I really don't know if the church is true. And that, that was disturbing to me because it was important to me either culturally or whatever it was to be able to say that I knew the church was true. Um, even on my mission, even early on in my mission in the MTC, I brought up with one of my teachers, like, Hey, like we, we were learning to say, I know the church is true. We didn't even, I mean, we learned that, we learned the verb to know before we learned the verb to believe. Right. And so we were saying, yo sé que I know that. And I said, Hey, like, I don't know if I can say I know. And, you know, to his credit, he gave me a, he gave me a, an out. He said, you don't have to say, you know, which I think is, which I think is great. But he also, um, he also said like, but you know, spiritual knowing is different than, is different than, you know, rational knowing. And so that was sort of my, that was sort of my kickoff into this world of, I know, I know, I know, I know. And I was, I think very much in that world for the next four or five, I mean, six years really from the time I was on my mission until this sort of faith crisis is now coming to a head. And what was tough for me too, 
was that I felt like Aubrey had married me on the premise that I knew that the church was true. And, you know, we had been, you know, in our uh, sort of intimate moments, we had shared testimony with each other and I had said, I know. And I felt, and, you know, it's on that basis that you get married in the temple and you're sealed for a time in all eternity and you're, you uh, form an eternal family. And so the idea that I no longer knew, and I'm not saying that any of this is doctrinal, this is my perception, right? Um, and so the prospect of potentially having to tell Aubrey that I didn't know that the church was true, that I didn't, um, you know, know really where my testimony stood was terrifying in a lot of ways. And so I, I sort of batted that around for, you know, probably a few months until finally, I remember one night we were driving, we were driving home on the freeway and I guess just a wave of vulnerability or whatever it was came over me. And I decided this is, this is the time. And I told Aubrey um, that I didn't, that I didn't know that the church was true. And I kind of, I didn't give her all the details or at what, it, of what had been bothering me or any of that. Um, but I gave her the, the high level of where I was at testimony wise. And I was really scared. I, I literally, I thought it was possible that she was going to say, well, that's it. You know, wow. like I'm going to like, I want to be married to someone that I can form an eternal family with. Because in my mind, I guess at that time, not knowing was the equivalent of not having faith. And now I, you know, I very much differentiate those two. And if I didn't have faith, then I probably wasn't worthy of an eternal family. And so it was, um, it was really scary. And I'll let Aubrey probably chime in here about what she was feeling, you know, during that, uh, during that confession. Um, but to her credit, she never gave me even a moment's pause about, you know, her love for me or her commitment to being together and continuing to form our family, you know, both through, um, I, I, and I don't remember exactly the way it, it went, but the way I'm imagining it is that she just put her hand on my shoulder and said, it's okay. I want to know everything that you're seeing and thinking. And I want to know everything yeah. you're seeing and thinking. Yeah. And she wanted to work through it together. And that was an absolute huge relief. Like part of it, you know, part of it was my relationship, questioning my relationship with the church and with my faith. But then the other part was questioning based on, you know, what I had come to believe or uh, come to not believe potentially part of it was questioning my relationship with Aubrey and not having that be in question was an absolute gift. You know, I never doubted my place in our, in our family because of what she because of how she responded and how she, and not just in that moment, but her actions over, you know, the coming years. Tim, thanks for just sharing that. It takes courage just to talk into a mic, yeah. <laughs> knowing that there's people going to hear what you just shared. And thanks for doing what you just did. Yeah, it's so welcome. honest. And so I just sent your great spirit and your desire to always do what's right. This isn't about not wanting to do the right thing. Or turning away from God. This is just about being authentic to how you feel and then having the courage driving down or up the freeway to open up to Aubrey. Aubrey, do you want to share? Sure, yeah. So I remember that exact place on the freeway when you said those words. Did you have kids in the car? It was just the two of you. I don't remember if there were kids in the car. We would have had two little kids, I think, yeah. Okay, well, um, yeah, I remember him saying that, and it was like one of those slow motion moments. And I, I hate that he ever you know, I had to wonder what my reaction would be, but that's really telling about our worldview at that point. It was such a 
it was such a part of our life to to have a testimony. It was like a, it was a, it was such a deep part of us to know that the church was true, and it, our whole life was oriented around that knowledge. And so it was really, it was a really disorienting moment to hear like this person who I trust more than anyone in the world and know better than anyone in the world and love more than anyone is, is, it can, can have this uncertainty. And so it was all at once that I realized how many misconceptions I had about people who left the church. First of all, that I realized, oh my gosh, it's not about oh, you know, laziness or sin or whatever thing you hear at church. It just, I could see that he was speaking out of integrity and I respected that so much and and did truly just want to um, want him to know that we're still a unit and and I do want to know why he's wondering. And, and it, it felt so clear to me in that moment that nothing would change about our relationship, of course. So anyway, but um, it was a... I feel like that moment was also a gift for me because it gave me some space to really examine my own testimony and decide what was fear-based and what what had I defended because I was afraid to imagine a world any other way and what what were really um what were the things that really resonated with me that I truly believed because I felt them deeply and and that was a really messy thing to figure out for a long time and I don't think that I would have had the courage to be the first one to start that process if Tim hadn't hadn't done it first so so he really made space for me to to start examining my faith and I I felt almost immediately grateful for for a little bit of peace and time. And I I just felt like I had room to really explore how do I actually feel? Like, are there things that I'm uncomfortable with? Are there things that maybe I don't actually know? And, and so that moment was a gift for me as scary as it was, because there was suddenly so much uncertainty in our life. Um, it really, it it really was a a gift for our marriage and, and for both of our, our faith journeys. Do you feel like Tim tried to pull you to his direction? Um, or did you feel it was more you wanted to understand because you love this guy so much and and you've just seen his good heart, you wanted to understand what had caused him to feel this way? Yeah, I, it was, at the beginning, I think it was so tender. It was so hard to talk about for either of us that it, it took years. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't like that burst the floodgates and then we were talking about it all the time at first. It was so tender and scary that it was, it was like he said it and it was out but it was so scary to talk about and to to really dive into for a little while because I think we were both trying to find some find something that felt stable to hold on to and and everything felt shaky suddenly and so so there was no we weren't arguing about it or being persuaded he wasn't persuading me and I wasn't persuading him we just it was just kind of out there now and we both knew it and then I th- I think we both sort of individually kind of started on our own on our own journeys. And then as we became more comfortable with this idea that we were exploring it, then it was easier to talk about and we could both have, have opinions and, and dissect them together and not feel so threatened by everything that was new, which is kind of how it felt at the beginning. It was just, it was so scary. At first, cause there's un- so much unknown. Did you think this could end your marriage or that Tim could leave you over this? No, I never worried about our marriage, but I, it was scary to imagine 20 years down the road and what, are we going to still be in the church and do we have to leave if we don't have a testimony? I remember that thought playing over and over that if I don't know the church is true or if I if I feel sure that it's not 
then what does that mean tomorrow? Like, can we, should we not go to church on Sunday? It was, everything felt there, like there was so much pressure. And so I think in the beginning, it was just working through hypotheticals. It wasn't even, I couldn't, it was like a, it was like a, a new wound that was so fresh. I just needed to like let the swelling go down for a little while, you know, like I, you just needed to sit with it for a little bit and, and think about all the, every hypothetical situation. What would it be like if our kids didn't get married in the temple? Or what would it be like if Tim couldn't stand in the circle and I needed to walk through the worst case scenario, all of those cultural things that were making me feel so much pressure. I needed to just walk to the end of the line of every single scenario so that I could finally get those out of my system a little bit and actually start thinking about how I how I felt because it was so cloudy with with that outside pressure that I couldn't even it was too hard to to think about something so so um personal and elusive as faith until those were out of the way. I love the way you did that. I, I sometimes when I talk to therapists they often take us there and then it's sort of the reality of the worst thing we're potentially thinking we kind of own it. And then you're, you know your marriage isn't ending, so you knew that wasn't part of your worst things. But some yeah. of these things, like Tim not being in the circle, um, and then you sort of own it, somehow that allows you to move on and have peace. So I like I don't know if yeah. you did that on your own or had somebody in your life that helped you do that, or maybe Tim helped you do that. What would you say, because you're kind of the uh, two questions that come to mind. One is, did you then go through your own faith crisis or transition? And the second question is, um, what would you say to the spouse, you know, when another spouse opens up about, I don't, I'm not sure the church is true. What advice would you give to that spouse? So those are two questions that could be five minute answers, sure. Aubrey. Well, I'll, I'll answer the <laughs> second our one answers. first. <laughs> yeah. I think, um, the thing when I eventually really felt like I was in the middle of what felt like a real crisis, the thing that was most helpful from Tim is just, um, I just needed validation. I think my issues weren't necessarily always shared by by him. And it was so nice to just be able to say the worst parts of myself. Like what like just say the most unformed thoughts, but all of the things that were swirling around and just be able to spew them out and and trust that he would keep that to himself and just it wouldn't change how he felt about me. And that relationship felt so secure that I think that's kind of what healed me. And, and I think there were a lot of times where I was really digging in on a certain subject and I was probably really off base and probably didn't even, didn't have facts right completely, but it was helpful to not have to argue about it, to just be heard and say exactly what I was thinking and, and know that I could always go to him and, and feel complete acceptance and validation. And, and that made me feel really safe in the relationship so that I could keep working through it. And had it become really personal between us, I think it would have, it would have been an obstacle in my own faith development because it would have been about us and not about faith. So, so just having that constant security was, was the biggest blessing. And I think, um, if I can just jump in really quick, I, I think a lot of time, what I was worried about was that Aubrey would be so focused on the future, the very long-term future, like our you know po- post-mortal future, that it would be worth it to That's her. It's a ways down the road. It's a ways down the road, yeah. <laughs> but like, it, if her perspective was, I need to have you know someone that's going to be worthy of having this this idea of an eternal family, then it might like the utilitarian in Aubrey might 
you know, it might make sense for her to say, this isn't going to work. This isn't going to work now. And I, this always, thinking about this always reminds me of uh, Terrell and Fiona Givens in, in their book, The Christ Who Heals. They have this great quote that says that heaven apart from those we love is just hell by another name. Yeah. And I think that what's absent a lot of times from, uh, from our thinking is that we really truly can have heaven on earth right now by being with those that we love. And so I think this idea that I'm going to sacrifice being apart from those I love now in order to have this heaven in the future is you're, you're sacrificing heaven right now and inadvertently creating, creating a different version of hell. And like Aubrey said, I, I think that idea, that, um, strength and bond that we had in our marriage and that safe space that we created was even though we were questioning what we even knew about, you know, the very long-term future, we created our own little heaven with each other, you know, by going through this together. Is your marriage better off for going through this? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Why, Aubrey? I think probably just because it requires so much vulnerability. It was, it was, an, it was getting in the habit of expressing your deepest fears, and I, I think I had really learned to keep those to myself, and and I think it just made us, it made us so much closer to be able to say, this is the thing I'm, I'm so afraid of, and and I think that's probably because you're just, you're never on the same page. It's so fluid. I, every day I felt a little bit different. It was, it would have been impossible for us to always feel the same at church. And so you just feel so vulnerable that this week, maybe Tim's a little more in than I am. And the next week I'm a little more in. And so you, you, it was just this, it was a constant, um, battle to just make sure that we were together as a unit. And I can't imagine something that could have been better for us in a marriage to just have to be so conscious about, about recognizing what, what is my own woundedness that's making me feel defensive about what Tim's saying right now? Well, I'm afraid of these things. And, and so it, it was just, they, these were hours of dinner conversations that, that forced me to face the thing that I felt most vulnerable about, vulnerable about and, and say it. And I think that kind of, that kind of shared vulnerability just just makes you so close. And so I, yeah, I feel like our, it transformed our, our marriage. You said a phrase in there that I wrote down part of it. What is my own woundedness that is keeping me, I think I'm paraphrasing the rest of it, mm. keeping me from fully listening to what Tim is sharing with me. What a yeah. thoughtful comment. Uh, thoughts on this, <laughs> Tim, do you think your marriage is better yeah. because you went through this? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, and we to this day now have this habit and we, I don't think we've ever talked about this before, but when dinner ends, we <laughs> just sit there for probably 30 to 45 minutes and talk about whatever the issue is uh, in that, uh, from that day, you know? And usually, I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking about necessarily stress at work, but like, you know, I, I heard this thing or, you know, obviously there are obviously uh, changes happening all the time now in the church and there are different uh, voices, you know, in this space that are talking about, talking about in different ways. And those those, you know, half hour to hour conversations after church are where we address those things with each other. And I think just so inadvertently that vulnerability, that willingness to talk about those things has actually created another space that we didn't even have before. Mm -hmm. That's actually, you know, more time intensive in a good way for us to just get to know each other and understand each other better. And so the willingness to talk about anything and the, the ability to truly express ourselves opens up not just the fact that you're talking about those things, but it's more, it's more time, 
together. Mm-hmm. You know? I love that. What advice do you have, Tim, for others that are in your space that you were and and worried about opening up to their spouse and are hearing yeah. this podcast and kind of hearing this beautiful story that at times I'm sure are some of your most painful moments, but sometimes that leads to what you're describing as this wonderful, better foundation. Yeah. So what advice would you have for those that... I mean, that's a really... I, to me, that's a really, really tough question because I don't think... There's um, one set. Yeah. And I don't think that everyone's response... I, like, I would love to say, hey, just be open and vulnerable immediately because look what happened. Aubrey was totally open to it. Like, I don't think that always happens. It's real thoughtful. Unfortunately. And and so I think it is a matter of sort of studying it out That's and great figuring answer. it out, figuring out what, uh, you know, what pieces are... Um, you know what pieces on the on the chess table everybody's got going, and I I was able to open up with Aubrey because I think over the you know five years that we had been married she had given she had given me indications and like I said I was unclear on what her response would be, but she had never given me reason to believe that the response would be response would be negative, and so um, I think in the long run it would be um, I, I don't think it's ever right to to just I just hold things inside and to never be open and vulnerable. But at the same time, I think you do need to be very thoughtful about timing, about how you approach it and all those things. And I wish there were, I wish there were a, you know, one, one stop answer for everybody, but I'm not sure that there is. I think, I think it's probably safe to say at least that the, the way to approach it is not with a list of problems that you see in the church. I think had Tim, in the car that day said, you would not believe what I just learned about anachronisms in the Book of Mormon. I mean, my like my defenses would have shot up. And it, I, but because he he approached it with so much honesty, and I could see that he was in pain and worried, and and he was he was doing something really hard. Those defenses weren't there. I, I was it was easier to just really listen and and hear what he was feeling. And I I think there was another way he could have done that that would have. It's that would have really caused me to tighten up and feel, and and feel like I needed to defend the church. So, yeah. I think that's right. I think each issue, and there are you know potentially many, and everybody has different issues, but can be an arrow, right? And so mm-hmm. you don't want to you don't want to fire all of those arrows at once if you fire them at all, right? I think what Aubrey's saying is is absolutely true. There's a there's a way to express uh, there's a way to express doubt um, and. Uh, even, you know, lack of belief if, uh, but, but at the same time, not necessarily turn it into an attack. And I think not, not on that person. I think it it would be a rare case where it's a, it's a direct attack on the person that you're, that you're telling these things to, but the church is so involved in our lives and our faith is such a part of our lives. And I think that's something that our faith does really well, that an attack on the faith in any way can seem like an attack on that person. And so, I think you do. Yeah. I, I think it just needs to be really uh, thoughtful and careful and done in a, um, in, in a way that's considerate of where that person, of where that person's at. How long of a time did you wonder if you'd find a way to stay in the church? I don't, I'm, I'm wondering if there was a period of time where you thought, you know, I'm not sure I'll be able to stay. And if that time existed, talk to our listeners how long that time existed and then talk to our listeners um, just what, how you were able to stay, um, and the feeling is that you'll probably oh, 
I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I sense when we went live, you're at a place that you feel sustainable. And yeah. You feel like you'll be mm-hmm. in the church. Yeah, I think I think we are. Um, I, the the answer to the first question, how long and was there was there a time like that? Yes, absolutely. Where we were wondering if we would be able to stay, and it was. I mean, I think it was many years. Yeah, to be honest, to honest. Um, I think a lot of times you do hear about people that you know read something online and you know, a week later they're out of the church. And that was never, for, for some reason, that was never us. Like we were never going to make a quick decision like that. I think um, we were really uh, committed to, to figuring it out over the long run because, because our faith was and is, you know, such an important part of who we are. And we, I think we've thought a lot about what we would be, what we would be giving up by leaving. And there was, there was really not a, not a case to be made for just giving that up without really going through some struggle first. And so I guess once we got into, once we got into this mode where we were able to openly share with each other, we, we, you know, we started listening to, to podcasts um, quite frequently. And I remember actually in one, um, in one particular case, I was listening to an episode uh, that Terrell Givens was a guest on of, of Mormon stories. And uh, that and listening to Terrell Givens for the first time, and I had listened to, I had listened to and read from, you know, many different, many different scholars and, you know, believing uh, faithful members that had um, sort of started to approach these issues. And I think that's something that's really important uh, to a lot of people when they, and it was certainly to us, once they start this period of faith crisis is I want to hear and read just everything out there and, and start to, and start to absorb and figure out what I, what I really believe. And, there was something different when I heard when I heard Terrell because there was a fairly pointed question at him um, about anachronisms in the Book of Mormon, and I think the question was specifically was about horses, and and the host um, said, you know, what do you what do you have to say about that? And Terrell said, well, I think that it's a problem. And Terrell, if you've ever mm-hmm. met him or read him, is about the most faithful uh, and committed member of the church that there is. And for him to say that he thought that, you know, that would potentially was a real issue that needed to be dealt with. And at the same time, he was an absolutely faithful and committed member of the church, holding those, those mm-hmm. two ideas in tension uh, and just continuing forward really opened up uh, a path, I thought, for me to say, because what I'd been trying to do up till that point was resolve every single issue that there was. You know, I had to take it one at a time, say, okay, how, how do I make polygamy okay? How do I make the Book of Mormon okay? How do I make, how do I make the Book of Abraham okay? And those things, that, that can become overwhelming and it can become a full-time job. And, uh, and you may end up, you know, not being okay with one or, or more of those issues. And so to get this, to get this new perspective where it, was, where it was okay to say, I'm still in, and I have these, uh, uh, you know, these issues, these problems, or these other ways of, of thinking about things. Sort of having that modeled for me, originally by Terrell, was really, really life changing. And again, that wasn't that wasn't the type of thing where I heard that and it was snap your fingers and you know I'm I'm good. But that was the that was at least the sort of germination of a of a path that I think is sustainable. You know, to hold be able to hold multiple sort of competing viewpoints in tension and, and still move forward. I love that. I really love that. Aubrey, l- things to add? Sure, yeah. Um, 
I so for 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 me the real um, brunt of the faith crisis opened up around plural marriage, and I, I think it really started. I think it started because Tim had sort of introduced this idea of uncertainty, and and so suddenly the things that had always been very painful for me were just excruciating because I didn't. I, I suddenly was able to comprehend the question: What if? It's not true. What if it's not true? And I think I'd never, ever in my whole life been able to wrap my head around that world. It just, it was too foreign. It was too hard to imagine that maybe it's not. And so as soon as I was able to do that once, then then the things that hurt most about the church felt like a bigger deal. And and so that was what brought my whole shelf down. It was just, I, in fact, I remember it was a very specific day um, that Tim and I were having a conversation with an old friend. And some, we were talking about something in the early church, and and the story involved uh, some plural marriage, and and I just remember hearing this friend and how he he could talk about it with with just this carefree curiosity, and and it was something about that tone that made me realize that the most painful part about this idea of plural marriage was not this hypothetical heaven that I thought I'd always you know that haunted me. It was something that I literally it haunted my dreams. It was something that. I thought about when I didn't want to, when I was alone in the car, it was it would creep into my thoughts, or when we were just happy together. It was like this dark shadow that just followed me. And and having this new uncertainty around just made that it just made that a bigger I couldn't I couldn't keep ignoring it. I couldn't run from it anymore. But I remember on that afternoon that seeing him talk about it with just this almost a flippancy like seeing that dissonance that I could tell that he had never felt the the intense pain that I felt around plural marriage. And it made me realize that the most acute pain that I had there was not about jealousy. It was really about how unequal it felt. It was that I I felt like I was less than a man in God's sight. And 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 I really had to that was the first time that I think I had really faced that. And so I decided that I just needed to learn everything I could about it. And and so I remember going to the scriptures first and looking up anything I could find about marriage. And that was like a big mistake, right? Because the Old Testament is all about, you know, women. Anything with marriage in the Old Testament is a woman being given to a man. And, and I remember reading and finishing and just feeling so low. I just, I felt like the penny and Tim's a nickel, you know, like I just, I couldn't see how God could see me equally if this was how it was meant to be. And, and so that was really what, what launched my faith crisis. It, it, it was just this room to realize that I just couldn't stand this. It just felt so off. And so, um, for me, it was, it was this new way of looking at faith and, and like, like Tim was bringing up with Terrell Gibbons, just this idea that I could acknowledge that this hurt and this felt wrong to me, and at the exact same time that there were good fruits that came from Joseph Smith, and and I didn't have to choose one or the other necessarily. And I had I had that's what I had felt up to that point that I had to I was literally keeping a, a Google Doc with like points for the church, points against the church, and like trying to weigh like should we be here and could this could he really have been a prophet with if all this had happened? And so I think a huge turning point for me was realizing that I could say plural marriage does not resonate with me. I don't know what was meant to happen or what's going to happen, but I know that I am equal. I know that God values me. And, and I, um, I remember specifically having a, 
I remember one really awful day that I was reading Rough Stone Rolling and I was in the Emma chapters and I remember just, just, I just couldn't comprehend how, how it could be true. How could this really have happened? And how could God be in this? And, and I remember just kind of taking a break and looking for, for some kind of inspiration. And I got on the church's website and this talk came up and it was one of those experiences where I, I just skimmed down and it was like one line was just leaping off the page. And it said, it said, no woman should ever, should ever question how the savior values womanhood. And the grace of that moment was not that I read that sentence, but just that I, I felt the most intense peace just settle over me that that was true. And that instead of starting with my problems, starting with plural marriage and trying to decide what that said about God, I, I needed to start from this truth that I felt from such a deep place that, that God saw me equally and that I was just as important as a man. And, and I could start from, from that piece and then figure out where to go from there. And I think from that point on, I, I felt like I had a little bit more room to explore and it wasn't, it wasn't a decision I was trying to make every day. If, if the, if the church earned my membership or not, it, I was just, I was just searching for good fruits and, and that search felt a lot more, um, peaceful than, than like the debate that I had been having about whether the church was all good or all bad, because I think that, I think that's what the Givens, what, what Terrell explained is that it's not all good or all bad. We're just, we're just looking for truth. And, and so I really had to, my paradigm really, really shifted about that point. And, and I also remember something, maybe it was in the same interview with Terrell, but I remember him talking about how um, faith is not like gravity. Like we are, we're compelled to believe in gravity because every time you drop a pencil, it's going to fall. And faith is not that way. There will always be compelling reasons to believe or not to believe. And we get to make that decision. And that was so liberating for me because I, I did think I was sort of a victim of this faith crisis. I thought, I felt like it was happening to me and it was so scary to just wake up and, and try to take my temperature and feel like, did I have a testimony today or more than I did yesterday? And I don't know what I believe. And I really felt so powerless. And, and I, I think Terrell is, I think he's so right that this is a decision that we get to make. And I love that, um, Paul, there's a Paul Tillich quote about that faith is, or the opposite of faith is not doubt. It's certainty. And I, man, that is, is not how I ever thought about faith, but I totally believe that now. I think doubt is necessary for faith. You have to have that doubt if you're going to make a choice to believe. And and certainty is certainty prevented me from ever having to experience the vulnerability of of, of choosing to believe when it when it didn't seem like a sure thing. And so, I think that that was really a, a turning point for me. So I. This is one of the better segments we've ever had on the podcast is just what you both just said. Um, Because there's a pastoral implication of what do I do if I'm the priesthood leader or parent and you two open up. And and I love what Terrell Gibbons did because we can all do that. We can acknowledge the difficulty of the situation without needing to put it back in the nice tidy box with a simple answer because it minimizes your experience and how hard you've worked on this. Yeah. And... So I love what Terrell Gibbons did for you, and I love your own personal journey with polygamy. Mm-hmm. And um, you use the word grace, and just 
you know, you just, you've never probably been able to resolve polygamy. Yeah. And no. if I were your <laughs> friend or your priesthood leader and I were trying to resolve polygamy, I don't think that's going to help you stay in the church, but the feeling of our doctrine yeah. all like unto God and a feeling of grace from that that one line in a talk and just living with the ambiguity of that. Um, I certainly would have, if I were um, your singles word bishop and you were single and I was early in my assignment, I would have been trying to resolve all this for you. I would have felt like that was my job. Mm-hmm. And I might have given you a conference talk or a scripture to read and kind of bring mm-hmm. you back to the way you were. And now my experience is this is awesome what you've gone through. And isn't it beautiful? And your ability now, your marriage is better. Your ability to help people is better. I think if you came on the podcast in 20 years and talked about your ability to be better parents, you're probably seeing some of that fruit now, but you're going to raise teenagers and I mean, now you're almost there. And I just think one of the beautiful chapters of your future is this journey you went through before you're going to, and I'm sure you're teaching your kids in a more thoughtful way right now, but especially in their teenage years and 20s and 30s, as they have you two in their life and the, and the foundation you've set for them um, and just your role within the church with Faith Matters and everything you're doing to share your story and bring more understanding so more can navigate this. Mm, so, thank you. I hope so. Um, let's talk about belonging. So now you are probably different <laughs> yeah. than a lot of Latter-day Saints. Yeah. Um, and just to comment on my own faith journey, it was a priesthood leader, my own home stake president, when I opened up to him some of my concerns, especially around LGBTQ, he gave me a model kind of like Terrell Gibbons did. He did that same thing for me. He talked about fallen dominoes. Mm-hmm. Um, and he gave me permission to have a few fallen dominoes, and he didn't make it about writing those dominoes around LGBTQ. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the domino analogy for me works because I have dominoes with really deep roots, a visual of a domino is one fall and they all fall. Yeah. And I like that. That's what I like about that model. And so I have dominoes that fell and they're leaning on mm. other dominoes and they're not coming up. <laughs> um, and I don't make my relationship with the church about somehow making those dominoes straight again. And my priesthood leader doesn't require that of me. But I have dominoes with really deep roots that keep me mm. a, a believing member. And so that's a little bit maybe what Terrell gave, what my yeah, own stake president that. did Absolutely. for me. Let's talk about how you belong then. So now you have just a different feeling and um, talk about belonging. I don't know who wants to start. Yeah. Well, I, so it's it's funny that you say like if you had been, you know, if you had been our priesthood leader, your uh, response would have been to try to fix it. You know, exactly. and actually we did we did go through that to some extent. I remember there was a, sort of a funny. Well, it wasn't funny at the time, but I guess it's funny now. Experience where Aubrey, I think, first felt like. I felt if like we're I going, needed to confess. Yeah, yeah. I felt like this was like something I had, to, I really had to like go confess. Yeah. And for like, some reason, living a lie. So I can't remember exactly what the circumstance was, but Aubrey went in. It was, I don't think he was even in Temple Recommend interview. It was just, no, I really was confessing that I didn't know if I knew if okay. it was true anymore. But for some reason, it was with the counselor in our ward, Bishop Rick. Mm-hmm. And Aubrey brought that up with him. And I didn't even know that that was going to be happening. I was waiting outside the door for Aubrey. And the door opened. I didn't know what went on in there. And he called me in at that point and sat me down and told me very directly that I was putting my family in danger. Because I guess what had happened, and you can fill this in, Aubrey, but Aubrey had said that, you know, we're going through these doubts and we're doing it together and Tim feels the same way I do. 
And I, I think he kind of took the patriarchal, you know, perspective and said, well, I need to get Tim in line. So he'll get his, his family in line. And he, um, and polygamy came up and he said, well, do you not believe the angel and the flaming sword and all of that? And I was just like, Hey, I wasn't even prepared to have this conversation. And, um, I wouldn't say that that's been a, a pattern, um, for sort of the rest of this time that we've gone through a, a faith journey that's been, you know, somewhat unorthodox, but I mean, maybe it's not been a pattern because we've learned our lesson to not really bring it up <laughs> with, uh, with leaders. Um, but like there have been, a, you know, there have been a few um, instances here and there where, you know, our true feelings for whatever reason were, were made known and we've been uh, corrected, you know, in some cases, um, in some cases severely wow. by leaders. And I, I think that, that can be a deal. That can be the deal breaker for members. Yeah. Um, and you've navigated that. Yeah. And it has, that can be a deal breaker. Absolutely. As you know. Well, I think what happens is that there's a, there's a crisis of faith. And then if you stay long enough, long enough, there's typically a crisis of belonging that, mm-hmm. that follows afterward. And I think we've really, we've really felt that because what you start to, I mean, I don't know if you've talked about stages of faith on your podcast. Yeah. Um, or um, stages of, of adult development. Yes. So um, I think, so in but, Thomas McConkie's book, Talk in, about um, in Navigating Mormon Faith Crisis, he talks about a, a stage called the, the diplomat. And that at that stage, I mean, and all stages you know, of adult development have their, their pros and cons. And um, one of the pros in that stage is a deep sense of belonging, but one of the, you know, one of the cons is that there's also a high level of conformity. And I think, and this is just my opinion now, but, you know, institutionally, it seems like we are somewhat in that stage and maybe, maybe working our way out of it. But like, if you look at, uh, you know, our faith tradition from a pretty high level, there is a lot of, um, there is a lot of conformity happening. I mean, we all sort of dress the same and look the same. We use the same vocabulary. Um, when, and even if you look at, and I think this is changing now, especially with, with Come Follow Me, but like, if you looked at our uh, our lessons on Sunday, like yeah. year after year, they were really, they were the same thing and they like the same points were brought up and they were said in the, in the same way. And it creates this, it creates this very uh, sort of very heavy blanket of cultural norms. And when you start to, and when you start to feel somewhat outside of that, or when you're told that you're outside of that, then because you know, because the church in many ways, like I said, is, is good at those things and bringing us together as a community, like you can start to feel very much like you, like you don't belong and you do have to, and you do have to find a way to sort of take you, take your own belonging with you wherever you go, rather than needing to, to fit in, which can be, which can be a challenge. And I think it's a lifelong challenge in a lot of ways. I think, I think it takes time. First of all, I think when this is when it's new and fresh, you're mourning so many things about that certainty. It feels so safe for somebody else to always have the answers, to not have to wrestle with hard issues like like issues with um, the the church right now and LGBTQ stuff and and or plural marriage and anything that feels uncomfortable. It's so much easier to defer to an authority and not have to wrestle with how uncomfortable you feel with it. And so you you that feels like pain when you have to let that go and you feel very exposed. Like you have to, you have to suddenly 
figure out what God wants from you and and you can't just shirk that responsibility anymore. And so you're mourning that piece. And and I think there's also security around knowing that that you are on the same page with your family or your your neighbors or friends and people who who you know well and and you have that in common. And and I think it's that's so it's hard to realize that if they knew what you really thought, then maybe they would be nervous for you or they would tell you that you were not being careful enough or I don't know. I think that I think you have to kind of let go of that too. And and then I think it's it can be really painful to just show up to church and when you're when you are in the middle of this rumble and you're trying to figure out what you really believe, everything feels triggering. You know, you I feel like I call it the diaper bag dig. Like there are so many times over the years where like I had to like bend over and pretend I'm like searching frantically for something in the diaper bag while I pull myself together because of something that a, a, a speaker said that just hit a tender point. And so I think that was about time. And when you asked before about how long it took before we felt, I felt peace about staying, I think it was like six or seven years. I mean, wow. it, it was a long time before I felt like, I think I can do this now. Or, or not, I think I can do this, but I'm choosing to do this. And I re, I, um, I remember coming across the story about Bishop Woolley and Brigham Young in, in church history and how he was, he Bishop Woolley seemed like an especially uh, opinionated leader and wasn't afraid to talk back to Brigham Young. And there's the the story about, um, I don't remember what they were arguing over, but there was some sort of heated argument and Brigham Young says, I guess you'll go and apostatize now. And, and Bishop Woolley said, if this were your church, then I'd be tempted to do so, but it's just as much my church as it is yours. And I think I kind of had to have that conversation in my mind with Brigham Young firstly, and then with other leaders, I like who, why, why, why do they belong and I don't? And you know, this was, this is my church. This is my heritage. This is, this is my ancestors' church and my family's church and my kids' church. And I belong here because I'm here and because I choose to be here. And so that makes it mine too. And and that makes it mine and all of the things that come with that. All of my uncertainty and and beliefs they belong here just as much as the person sitting next to me. And. And I think it took a really long time to feel that comfortable because we're, we just, I think it's so easy to just look for reasons why we don't belong. And when you're in the mindset of looking for reasons why you don't belong, you just, they just add up so fast. I, I, it's so easy to just sit back and wait for somebody to say something you disagree with. And, and I went to church like that for so many years, just sitting back and I, it was like tempting them to just say, I dare you to say something that I don't agree with because I'm really comfortable now saying you know, just crossing that person off my list of allies. <laughs> and and that the end game is that you feel so isolated. I felt completely alone. And and so Thomas McConkie's book uh, was a really big step for me in 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 changing my um my understanding of what my goal was at church. It wasn't to go and and stew about all the things I disagreed with. It was about it was about looking for um for things that felt like God. And, and he talks about late in a later, um, part of the book, he talks about how we have this tendency to become exclusively inclusive. And I was so guilty of that. You know, when you're in that conformist stage, you're, you're, um, it's easy to exclude people who feel too 
progressive or outside of the norm. But, but later you kind of, you can flip flop that and you become really exclusive around people who you don't think are inclusive enough. And so I, I was doing that. I, I, anytime a leader said something that felt like it, it felt like they were, it was a tell. They were either confessing that they were with me and they were going to try to be very inclusive to, to the fringes or they were chastising me and I was constantly sorting leaders into which category they fit into. And, and so Thomas's, that point Thomas made really changed how I, how I go to church. And, and I think about this every time before church starts, I think about number one, am I being exclusively inclusive? And, and instead can I look at this person and recognize that they're they're um, speaking out of love and that they went home and prepared this talk and and they're trying so hard to connect to God just like me and I don't need to be I don't need to to be their judge just the way I would hope that they're not mine and then the other thing that I really try to remember is from Brene Brown's um, last book Rising Strong I love her idea about um, having generous assumptions and. And that has helped so much. Like it just doesn't cost us anything to have a generous assumption about the people we come in contact with. And it doesn't cost you anything to believe that whatever their life experience is, this is where it has brought them. And I can respect that. I can respect that this leader who maybe is bearing testimony about a vengeful God that doesn't resonate with me, I can respect that whatever happened in their life has brought them to that point and that they're speaking out of integrity and I can feel love for them and consequently connection to God through them, even while they're bearing testimony about a God that I don't believe in. So having that, I mean, it's a battle. I, I literally read those things to myself before, before, before church starts to remember that, that I, I don't have to judge. I don't have to decide if I'm the same. I'm just there to connect to God. And I, I think we can do that with, with the people with our community even though not one of us is on the exact same page so that's been the biggest thing I think to help me feel belonging and, and maybe one more I remember one time I was um I remember just sort of venting to some friends that I, I was having such a hard time in Relief Society and I remember telling them I just need one person if there was just one person who would raise their hand and say something that would show me that they understand where I'm coming from. That's all I would need to feel like I can be here. And and I remember them all just kind of looking and, and saying, like, why? Like, what are you waiting for? Like, who knows who else is sitting there thinking the same thing? Like, why aren't you raising your hand and, and saying the things that you wish someone would say? And it, it never occurred to me. I really I had spent all these years just waiting for somebody to say, I can be your friend. And and I was expecting this sort of connectivity that I was withholding. And I, I think as soon as I decided to just open up and be vulnerable and and share how I really felt, people absolutely met me there. And and that was not what I expected. And and now I feel like Relief Society is a haven. It is it's absolutely cool. where I go to feel fed. And and I don't know that there's a single other sister in the room who shares a similar story or faith as as I do, but I feel like there's really a sisterhood there because because there is so much shared vulnerability. And I, I really think that it was my withholding that made me feel so isolated. Yeah, to Aubrey's point about um, generous assumptions, I think, it, I think it really is really rare to encounter someone that's not doing their best in, mo- in most yeah. ways. And like I, I shared that brief story about, um, about the bishopric member who chastised me. 
And like, like Aubrey said, and this is a perspective we've talked about even more commonly just in the last year, where as it's sort of come into focus for us, is that even though I think that, you know, in many ways that was an inappropriate action, um, you know, he was absolutely doing that out of love. Like he was, he's legit, from his perspective, I was putting my family in danger. And so the best mm-hmm. way, the best thing that he can do for me is to, is to correct me. And so while that comes across as very combative and like an attack from, especially, um, you know, when you're in that room and it's, and actually experiencing it, which can be really difficult. If you're able to take a step back from your, uh, amygdala a little bit and say, what's really going on here? Mm-hmm. That's actually an expression of love, which, and, and, that perspective uh, obviously gives you license to feel a lot more charity back toward them. And another thing that Brene uh, Brown has brought up in another book, um, Braving the Wilderness, is is on the subject is to move in. Yeah. And this is something I'm not very good at. Aubrey, I would say, is is very good at. When you feel like someone is just so far apart from you and so different than you and has such different perspectives and you just can't feel any any love toward them, if you actually get to know them, it's a very rare case where you don't end up where you don't end up loving them and seeing that they are seeing that they are well intentioned. Mm-hmm. And um, the the irony is that when you start feeling this way at church, and then you hear, you know, and then you hear the speakers or the teachers or whatever, and they and or the, just the commenters, and they say something that seems so far removed, your natural reaction is to move out. Like you want to separate yourself from that person or those or those people. But if you can sort of buck that natural instinct and move in instead, there's, I, like I said, I think there's, it's going to be a very rare case where you don't find that at their core, they are absolutely well-intentioned, they're loving, and they are doing their very best, just like, just like you are. That's really good stuff. Um, I'd love you to talk about Faith Matters and introduce that to any of our listeners that aren't aware. And another question that came to my mind is, you know, I think a lot of local leaders listen to this podcast and have heard you two talk, but what advice would you have for local leaders, for couples like you? Because um, I think a lot of our local leaders recognize there's couples like you um, that legit that want to stay. Their goal is to find an authentic way to stay, and they're going, what, what do I do to create a culture in our wards so that couples like you two f- um, feel like they belong and feel like they can stay? So that's kind of two questions. Faith matters in that second one. Yeah, I can give you the background on Faith Matters. Um, so ever since our initial uh, moments being introduced to Terrell Givens, we were super fans. And maybe and Fiona. And Fiona, yes, Terrell and Fiona. <laughs> um, and about two years ago, probably, um, there was this podcast that Aubrey heard called Conversations with Terrell Givens. And she sent it to me immediately. And we fell in love with it. And... It turned out I kind of looked at the about page on the website and ended up, without getting into a long story here, just connecting with the with the founders, um, Bill and David Turnbull, and Terrell was heavily involved with uh, with Faith Matters. Faith Matters is the is the organization that put on the podcast um, conversations with with, uh, with Terrell Givens, and just v- sort of volunteering our help. I have I have a background in. Uh, in web technology and in marketing a little bit. And I just said, Hey, if I can, if I can contribute, uh, then I'd love to. And Aubrey felt the same way and they welcomed us with open, uh, with open arms. And so for the, about the past year and a half, we've been 
we've been working on on this foundation, the Faith Matters Foundation. And I think you're part of the executive team. That's right. Founders and executive team. Yep, we That's are. That's great. And the, the, the mission really of Faith Matters is um, to sort of, maybe not recapture, but uh, but at least capture the expansive vision that we think our faith tradition really has, you know, from its, from its very beginning. I think Joseph Smith, um, you know, was, uh, for, you know, for any flaws that he had, he was gathering truth from wherever he could find it. You know, he found it, um, he found it in, you know, Masonic rituals and he found it in, uh, ancient Egyptian papyri and there, he had, he had no exclusivity in terms of where he was willing to find inspiration and create something great out of it. And I think that's really one of the um, roots of, uh, of our faith and Mormonism more broadly that we don't maybe give enough airtime to, that we're, we're looking for truth, period. Mm-hmm. And we've found something really, really great in this, in this faith. We've, we've found a God who is a God of love, you know, a God that is willing to, to weep with, with us, a savior who's, we think, you know, whose primary role is to heal us from our, from our woundedness. And those are remarkable doctrines. And, um, and I think the, the overall mission of, of faith matters is to say, this is, this is, this is expansive. This is loving, this is healing. And let's get that message out to the world you know, as best we can. And do you do that primarily through podcasts? You do events, do yep. you have articles? Yeah, so uh, the the biggest things that we're doing right now are articles on the website. So the, the website is faithmatters.org. We also, have a, we also have a podcast, the Faith Matters podcast. Um, one of the big initiatives that we're working on right now is called the Big Questions Project. Yeah, I love that title. Yeah, yeah. and the, what, what's interesting a little bit that, that's different about this, and I, I would say than, than apologetics, is that we're not, it's not the big answers project, you know, and this yeah. is something that really, it resonates with me because like I told you earlier, like going to, going to apologetics website and saying, I need the answer that, that never really resonated. I never felt like I was, I was able to find it. And what we're doing with faith matters, um, is trying to approach the question as a question, you know, and gather different voices. And we, and so we are tackling topics like, you know, like polygamy, like the book of Abraham, uh, evolution, LGBTQ issues, Great. all of those things, but we're not saying here's the answer. You know, here's how you can resolve it. But we're, what we're trying to do is create a space where we're saying there are, you know, many other thoughtful people like you that are that are exploring these questions and working through it and trying to figure it out, and give a platform for all different types of perspectives on it, and at the same time create a community that you know anyone can be a part of, um, of like-minded Latter-day Saints. That's great. So needed. I wish I'd connected with Faith Matters earlier. Yeah. <laughs> um, and talk about what a local leader, a Bishop Relief Society president, Elders Corn president can do to just create a feeling of, of people can belong. So I think um, definitely at the beginning of this whole process, I think the thing that would have been most helpful is exactly what you, what you threw out that you would have said to somebody who or, or could have said to somebody who is really experiencing crisis, which is just kind of just, I respect that you're in the middle of this. And, and I think, I think that would have, um, that would have just given me so much peace. I, I, I think you're just in such a vulnerable place and, and maybe even, I think I had an especially hard time approaching a leader just as a, as a woman to the priesthood, because I felt like, 
I was waiting to for them to inspire me, to tell me what God told me I was supposed to know. And it was really hard to figure out how I fit in that dynamic anymore. And so it would have been really empowering for a leader to just to just validate that I was I was seeking truth out of integrity and and that it wasn't a a sort of deficiency in faith that it was it was um hopefully a maturity or or at least it was a reaching for God and for for a leader to just validate that this was really true reaching and and not some sort of rebellion would have that would have just been a big that would have been a big layer of of pain that would just be stripped away just having having that sort of validation from someone who who is in charge I think I learned somewhere along the line that I can validate how someone feels even if they feel different than traditional sort of most LDS members feel and it doesn't mean I'm selling out my personal beliefs or the, the traditional church beliefs I just I recognize mm-hmm. I can do both of those at the same time mm-hmm. so if you if I hold slightly different feelings about polygamy, my first yeah. reaction would be to pull you to my way of thinking or the traditional way of, and yeah. I think I've, I've learned and I'm not perfect to this, but I think I can hold your, I can do more to minister to you to hold, validate how you feel. And if you feel pain to hold your pain versus yeah. dismiss that and yeah. try to, and so I think it's just a principle of ministering yeah. um, that, I've never been taught, and I don't claim to be an expert, but I think that's one of the things I like about what you're both teaching on this podcast is I think we can all do that. That doesn't require a lot of schooling or a lot of scripture study. I can just, everybody can do that. Everybody can just listen to a story and honor their story. And I think we can hold, I don't think it's a requirement to be, I sort of think, you know, your commitment to the church and your desire to, to contribute and do what's right Behind that, we can have different feelings about polygamy, for example, yeah. or LGBTQ, or the Book of Abraham, or horses. Yeah. <laughs> and it's not necessarily an insight or a commitment to the church or a commitment to help other people. Mm-hmm. And so I think we just need to create more space for people as they're doing their best. You know, the church phrase now is stay on the covenant path. So I use that phrase and say, you know, this is if we honor people how they feel and create a culture that they can feel the way they feel as they're doing the best to stay on the covenant path, we'll keep more people on the covenant path. Yeah. Um, so any more you want to talk about belonging? Um, I do want to just mention my brother's book. I think you know my brother, yeah. David. Yeah. Yes. Um, David is the owner of the third top listened episode of our 195 episodes. Hey. Oh. He's episode 197, and he did a book called Ministering to Those Who Question, and it's called Bridges, and I would just encourage um, local leaders to read this book, and a lot have, and I've, my brother's told me a lot of good feedback he's gotten, is it just also addresses some of the things you're talking about, is when people have questions, and you've had honest questions, um, and how do we handle that? And yeah. I just think that's an area where there's just more um, understanding that we can share with each other to do just do a better job. Yeah. Yeah. Any thoughts on this subject before we go on to our last segment, gifts of, of faith crisis? Well, just the one, the one thing that you said that sort of struck me was the, this phrase, the covenant path. And traditionally, we've talked about the straight and narrow path. You know, and a lot of, uh, uh, growing up, I think um, this is not a new insight by any means, but you think of that as a straight, meaning, you know, it's a, it's a straight line and narrow path. But, mm-hmm. you know, straight just means narrow uh, when you spell it without the G-H, you know. And so 
what that's really saying is the narrow narrow path. And I, you have to wonder, I guess, why it's so narrow. And I think it's because it's individual. Like there's not really room for all of us to be walking the same path if it's a narrow, narrow path, right? It's, it's totally, it, and, it, and it's at the same time, it's not straight with a GH. I love that. Right? It's a winding, it's a winding path. And so the covenant path for each of us, I think, yes, it has certain, it has certain checkpoints by all means, but it looks completely different for everybody. And so for a local, for a local leader that's, um, that's talking to somebody that's not on their path, it's just accepting that this is a, this is a different path and it by necessity, it's a different path because we're each on our own. Love that. I love the visual of just creating space for people as they're doing their best. That's great. I, there's really quick, there's this, um, idea in Buddhism that, or an image that I just, I think about a lot. Um, it's the, it's the, it's the master pointing at the moon and if truth represents the moon, then, then our church is the finger pointing to the moon, right? And so the focus should never be on the finger or the person. It's really at the moon. And so I, I feel like that's the most effective thing a leader can do is just, and it's kind of, I think, um, Elder Holland really brought this up in conference just barely that the, the point of everything we do at church is to, is to send us to God. And so everything, every single thing we do should be should be directing us to God, and if if it's not, then we need to like look at it and figure out why are we doing it still. But I I think that that's the most influence a leader can have on me for good is is just pointing me to to God, and and usually that does not it has never looked like arguing about church history or or any of the any of the facts that I'm having issues with. It's it's about creating a place that feels safe for me to figure that out for myself. And so if I am feeling welcome and, and, and loved, I think I can, I can see God at church and, and God can work through church. And that, that's the most important thing that I, I think a leader can make space for and can do as a, as a leader. They have a lot of power in, in just making it a place that feels welcoming to anybody so, and, when, and wherever they are. I love the I love the visual of a finger pointing to the moon and we and the 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 fingers the means to the end the moon are coming into yeah, God. Yes. It's interesting. I thought of my own analogy one morning on a walk and I thought an island in the ocean represents the moon mm-hmm. or coming into God and the current represents our church bringing me towards that ocean. Wow. Um but then sometimes that current works against me. Mm. Um and sometimes and I in an imperfect culture, an imperfect church, at times the current makes it harder for me to come towards that island. And I've, mm. I've felt some of that at times, and I've recognized it's not me doing anything wrong or I haven't gotten off the right current. So sometimes that part of the visual analogy sort of yeah. has been part of my journey to recognize at times there's been some currents that have worked against me, and I've learned to validate those currents. Um, but then I love your phrase here, generous... Um, I forgot the Generous rest. Of, assumption. I yeah, can't even read the rest of. <laughs> um, talk about um, I, you framed this before we went live, Aubrey. You've, no one's ever fra- the gifts of faith crisis, which is instead of the positive word you put there. So I'm thinking this segment is talking, and you've inferred this a lot already, or taught this already. It's just there's positive things that have happened because of this journey. Yeah. So um, I really do feel like it. It has been such a gift. I, it's not a tragedy or something that happened to us that I regret. I I feel like it was a a really um, 
it was a refiner's fire to use our, our church language. And, and I feel like the things that I've, um, that it really changed in me, first of all, was just this humility. I think it, it challenged my ego and it made me realize how much I liked feeling like I was special and had this thing that, that not everyone had. It was like my testimony kind of felt like a badge of honor and not just my testimony, but the God having this exclusive truth. And, and so, so introducing uncertainty to that picture was really a gift of humility because suddenly now the world had valuable truths to offer to. And, and, um, and so I think I, I've really gained an appreciation for the ways that other people connect to God. And some of those things have, have helped me too, but, but most of all, I just, I just appreciate this new perspective and, and recognizing that people are, are legitimately finding God in, in ways that aren't familiar to me. And I really respect that now. And I think that was invisible to me before. So that, that's probably the biggest. And I think the other, um, the other big gift is that I recognized how many ways I had tangled God up with fear and, I think my, you know, like I said before, my testimony was really wrapped up in fear and, and everything I did at church had something to do with fear. I, I, the way I prayed was very fear-based. And, and so, um, I just having to get really comfortable with not being sure anymore was a, a good way to shine light in, in all of the darkest places. It made me look right in the face, all of the things that I was really afraid of. And so it's, it's changed the way I, I pray and, and try to connect to God. And instead of, I think before it was sort of a habit to just list all of my anxieties in prayer and even, and that included, please, please tell me if the church is true. I just, it was, I was so afraid. I just like needed somebody, I just needed to know for sure. And I think that these years have been such good practice in just letting go of needing that kind of certainty and being really comfortable accepting what God does give me. And so, so I, I value contemplative prayer a lot more than I ever did because it's a way to, to not have to make a a verbal list of my anxieties and, and to just sit peacefully and quiet and try to connect with God and feel open and willing to, I, I, I love what, how Adam, um, Miller talks about this kind of radical acceptance where you, you choose to break bread with whatever God gives you. And I, I just love that image that whatever, pops into my lap, I can break bread with that and trust that God is still leading me along. And, and, um, I, I think I wasn't able to think about my life that way before this whole crisis of faith happened. So, so just a new way to connect to God. And then, um, and then I think it helped me to refine what I was looking for. Was I, was I trying to reinforce my commitment to the church or is my commitment to truth? And, and those things had always been synonymous, but when it didn't feel synonymous, it, it was good for me to learn how, how to um, realize that truth is really what I'm looking for. And so I, I value the church because it has been my vehicle my whole life for helping me to find God. But that, I think just recognizing and, and um, facing the things that didn't resonate with me, have that's helped me to let go of... of things that didn't matter and hold on to the good fruits. And I think the fruits of the church have been almost entirely good. And, and so experiencing this, this excruciating crisis 
helped me to just let go of the bad fruit and just realize that it wasn't all or nothing. I can, I can recognize when something doesn't resonate with me and when it fills me up with joy. And, and that's helped me to find God in a way that I really wasn't capable of before because I waited for someone to tell me how I should feel. And so starting from scratch and, and building a testimony little by little, or, or maybe not building. I, I, I like the, I like the metaphor more of, of digging, like digging for water, like just digging deeper and deeper. And, and you get all kinds of rocks and things that don't matter, but I feel like there is still a pathway through all the mud. There's still a pathway to finding connection to God. And that's just made the hardest things about church history more palatable, not because I needed, I don't need them to be, I don't need them to be palatable anymore. I can call them if they feel like mud, it's mud, and I can still find water there. I can find God somewhere, and and so I think I really needed, I think I needed this this whole experience to um, to just help me find my own very personal connection to God that I I just really had never discovered. So those are those are probably the those the ways it has trans, transformed. You me. have a wonderful gift of coming up with phrases. I keep writing oh. them down oh. <laughs> in it, in the middle so of nice. all the great big ideas you're sharing, but um, tangled up God with fear. Mm. What a wonderful, just the word tangled, that created an instant visual of this fear kind of wrapped around God and how that yeah. really isn't our doctrine, but culturally and um, there's a, and I love Elder Uchtdorf gave a talk about, you know, trying to take the fear. Yeah. Um, I love what you just said about that. And I, a loving God, and I don't. Yeah. I think we have too much fear. A lot of that's yeah. generated by the us versus them culture, and yes, um, and I just think Satan uses fear in a manipulative way. Um, that God wouldn't want. I think He would want to de-fear us in yeah. some ways. That doesn't mean He decommandments us, or yeah, <laughs> it's eat, drink, and be merry. But I really love your thoughts on that. Oh, thank you. And and especially in faith crisis, you know, there's so much fear there. But God is not the spirit of fear, right? We it's power and love and a sound mind. And to me, that means diving into a faith crisis when you feel that fear. It means that feeling is not telling you to be careful. That feeling is saying, what's wrong here? And and look into it and find, you know, use your use your mind and that that the sound mind that God gives you and and shine a light where it feels scary and dark. And I, I that has been that has been a pathway to connection for me, not not disconnection like I was show, so afraid that it would be. Yeah. Tim, do you have any thoughts on yeah. gifts of faith crisis? Yeah, just a couple, although I don't think I can say it much better than Aubrey did. Um, I think for me, authentic faith is probably, what I would call authentic faith is probably the biggest the biggest gift from, from faith crisis. And I, I guess I really should put faith crisis in sort of air quotes because I don't think it was a crisis of faith. I thought I think it was a crisis of, uh, you know, what I thought was what I thought was faith. Yeah. And um, when you, I guess, when you start going through this, like I like I mentioned earlier, like a lot of times coming from a Latter Day Saint background, you're dealing with this with this paradigm of of knowing, and I think. Just, I think that's actually part of part of our natural man, you know, and our, and our natural woman, is this is this constant quest for for certainty. We just really, really want that. And I, I think, in terms of like our biological and evolutionary heritage, that totally makes sense, right? It's like 
we're afraid of the dark because we don't know what danger might be out there. Like we want to like flip on the lights and we want to know, you know, what the potential, what the potential dangers are that could, that could hurt us. And we apply this to our spirituality as well. Like we need to know that the church is true and we need to know, you know, exactly who God is and what he's like and what our standing is with him because to not know is, is insecurity. It's, it's danger. And going through this, um, but at the same time, it's interesting because if you take Alma's definition of faith, once you know, you don't, you don't actually have faith anymore. Your faith is, your faith is totally dormant. And so I think, but at the same time, you know, when you actually read the words of, of Jesus Christ, what he emphasizes is faith, not knowledge. And so for me, what came out of this was, an, uh, I guess, a vulnerability and an uncertainty to accept to accept that lack of, of security. Like I truly, you know, I don't know exactly, you know, a lot, a lot of things, but I do, but I do choose to believe a lot of things. And so, and I, and I think that's really, and I, I can only speak for my own, for my own path, obviously, but I think for the majority of us, for the majority of our lives, I think that must be what God intends because he talks about faith so much, you know, it's a lack of, by definition, it's a lack of knowledge. And when you have that uncertainty, yes, there's, there's a lack of security com- that, that comes with it. But at the same time, the huge gift is this flexibility and this ability to explore and, and find your own path. And that's been, uh, that's been incredibly meaningful to me. Like, and Aubrey mentioned a little bit about this, to be able to examine my own conscience and say, what do I really, what do I really think about this? And having not um, having not gone through this faith crisis and being stuck in that original rigidity that I had, it, there's no room. There's no room to to think like that. And so and so that's not only helped me get to know myself better, but I think it's helped me come closer to understanding the nature of God, who is a loving. You know, like I mentioned before, who I truly believe is a, a loving and healing God. And ironically, throughout this process, as we've stayed and wrestled through this, I've found connection with God in the church specifically more than I ever had before. Um, there have been several specific instances even when I, where I've connected with ward members or connected with something that was said or something that I read that, you know, the church was the direct source of that where I felt particularly connected to God. And that, that told me that God's here in this church. And if it's, if it's okay for God to be here, you know, then that's, then that's good enough for me. Any concluding thoughts? You've done such a great job on this podcast. Um, this is one of the finest podcasts we've done. They're all great, oh. but you two are particularly wonderful insights. Any final I, thoughts? Maybe just when we were talking about the generous assumptions around leaders and teachers, I think the other piece that Brene Brown is really, um, that she talks about in her book is is that, yes, you have generous assumptions and you have good boundaries. And maybe this is a good place to bring that up, that that if you're if you have a, a child or or you have OCD or your spouse that you you need to be asking yourself what kind of boundaries do I need around church and and maybe my leader if I have a leader who who just isn't educated then what can I do internal boundary wise or or physical boundaries to keep myself safe and healthy Agreed. at church Tim any final thoughts you know I I think my uh, the only thing that I would really want people to take away from this is that our paths, like, like I said before, our paths all, all look different and wherever you are on your path, I respect that, 
you know, as part of, as part of your experience. And I think, um, and I think there have been many wonderful people in my life that have done that for me. You know, Aubrey is, Aubrey is number one. And so when either, when you're going through a faith crisis or something, or something difficult, you know, find those people around you who, who respect your path. And if somebody around you is going through it, then, then respect their path. I, I tend to have a fairly universal view. I think it's impossible for us to, to judge other people just because we don't have nearly enough context. God has all the context. And I think typically God in his, uh, in his wisdom and with all of that context, he is going to be extraordinarily merciful, you know, more merciful than we can imagine to, uh, to all of us. And so I just, I, I, I just, I just want that, that perspective that I think is truly inherent in our religion to be, um, to be more broadly, uh, felt and, and talked about. That's great. Say your last name for us so I don't mispronounce oh, it. Oh, yep. Chavez. Chavez. Chavez, yep. So, um, our listeners know that I'm not very good at learning last names <laughs> and saying them right. So I wanted to make sure you said it, but outside of that, um, great to have you, Tim and Aubrey. And you were, I love the respect you had for each other as you both spoke. You just gave each other time to speak. You didn't speak over each other. Um, there's just great chemistry between you. It's a model marriage to me for um, our younger people to have two people like you, where you are in our church, with your faith, with your understanding and your ability to stay. It's couples like you that give me hope for the future in so many ways. So thanks for all you're doing on behalf of all our listeners. We have loved having you on. And this is Richard Osler signing off on a, another episode of Rich, of, sorry, of Listen, Learn, and Love.